from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Overinformed on Vegetable IPM. week's pest is a good one. It's diabolical. It's resilient. It's kind of adorable. It's the Colorado potato beetle or CPB for short. I think CPB are very cute. They play dead if you scare them. If you pick them up, they will roll over on their backs and throw up on themselves. It's a defense mechanism and I don't know why, but I find this very endearing. Colorado potato beetle, of course, is a pest of potato. It is native to North America, but it was not a pest insect until we introduced cultivated potato to its native range. It's also got an important place in our modern history, which we will get to, but first the basics. CPB overwinters in the adult stage in the soil. When they emerge in the spring, they walk to search for food plants where they eat potato leaves and lay lots and lots of eggs. Those eggs hatch and the larvae eat lots and lots of potato leaves, which reduces the yield of the potatoes growing below ground. The fact that they walk into potato fields during cool spring temperatures is important. Best management practices call for rotating fields out of potatoes or other solanaceous crops from year to year, and if you can, keep potatoes some distance from previous solanaceous crops. That's at least 200 yards from wherever potatoes, tomatoes, or eggplants were growing last year. Even better if there's a physical barrier between new and old fields, like roads or ditches, but trenches or straw mulch can be put in place as a physical barrier as well. Once CPB do colonize a potato field, it is important to remember that potato plants can endure quite a bit of above ground damage without negatively impacting below ground yield. So during the vegetative phase, Scout fields by selecting 50 potato stalks, that's selecting them from various parts of the field, um, and counting the adults, small larvae, or large larvae that you observe on these stalks. Treatment will not be necessary unless you observe more than 25 adults, or more than 200 small larvae, or more than 75 large larvae in this 50 stock sample. Consult your management guide to select your protection approach, and remember, pesticides must be applied only as directed on the label to be in compliance with the law. So read those labels. All right, a little history. Like I said, CPB is a native species to North America and was first described by the American entomologist Thomas Say in 1824 as a thoroughly unimportant species found feeding on buffalo burr. Um, This is a wild solanaceous plant that grows in the Rocky Mountains. Not until 1859 was this insect associated with crop losses, where it began destroying potato fields in Nebraska. After this, it spread eastward and was first reported in New Hampshire in 1876. For those of you who are tired of hearing about invasive insects coming here from other countries, you should remember that other countries get them from us too. In the 1870s, CPB was accidentally introduced to Europe, and it was later given the name Yankee Beetle. CPB spread eastward through Europe, and by the 1950s, Soviet-occupied areas of Europe were so heavily infested with Yankee Beetle that propagandist claims that the United States had actually released these insects as a biological weapon 
They didn't seem so far-fetched. You can see old posters depicting the U.S. airplanes dropping these beetles in our show notes. I had a professor in grad school who grew up in Eastern Europe around this time, and although he denied believing the story, he kind of talked like he did believe the story, that uh, Americans held some blame for the crop losses they saw them. It's a really devastating pest, and it would make a mark on anyone's psyche. To really understand why CPB was and remains such an important pest through history, let me introduce you to the concept of the pesticide treadmill, a term coined to describe how quickly pest insects can develop resistance to chemical pesticides. With CPB, resistance can develop so quickly that the pesticide industry must constantly develop new pesticides with new modes of action. That means new ways of killing the insect. Um, by the time a new product is ready for use, we've already lost the old one, um, as though we're on a treadmill. In a natural setting, in, in ecology, this is sometimes called an evolutionary arms race, or Lee Van Valen's Red Queen hypothesis. Um, this hypothesis is a reference to a line from a Lewis Carroll novel, where the Red Queen explains to Alice that in the land beyond the looking glass, it, quote, takes all the running you can do to stay in the same place, unquote. Here, all the running is the coevolution necessary to avoid predation. This could be literal running, like being good at running away from a predator. But in plants and insects, this could be a chemical defense. So, for example, a plant might produce noxious chemicals uh, in order to deter insects from feeding on them. But the insect might, in turn, develop a way to tolerate those noxious chemicals. Obviously, a coevolutionary arms race takes place over a much longer time frame than pesticide resistance. Heavy reliance on one class of insecticide really speeds up this process, but there are ways to slow this down. I spoke with someone who knows this story very well. Okay. Well, uh, I am Andrei Alekhin. I am professor of applied entomology at the School of Biology and Ecology at the University of Maine, and my lab is split between main campus uh, in Orono and Aroostook Research Farm in Presque Isle. To a degree, it's a charismatic insect. You know, it's easy to spot. It's kind of cute. Uh, yet another interesting thing about that, to me, it's kind of a very good reminder that we should not become particularly cocky as in, you know, I'm a human being, I have a good brain. I mean, I have a big brain, not necessarily good brain, but I have a relatively large, you know, brain to body volume ratio, so I'm invincible. Uh, and that's very much not the case, because for years and years, everything in the kitchen sink has been thrown at Colorado potato beetles, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars spent on developing products and, you know, testing them and applying them. Some pretty smart people worked on the test, and I'm not talking about myself, by the way, in case anybody is wondering, but uh, the problem is still there. And while right now it's under control, that may change any time. You know, basically we are essentially one large, well, two large product classes from the failure, right? So I would say diamides and uh, um, 
spinner scenes with Chalfenpir, I guess, three groups, also Chalfenpir ad, but Neonix, which essentially rescued the industry on the Northeast in mid-1990s, they are already kind of pale shadow of themselves in many areas. Yeah, so you said that Neonix came in to replace older chemistries and now we're seeing the diamides and a couple other active ingredients or a couple other classes come in. Is anything being done right now to prevent the same thing happening to those classes that happened to previous classes or? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I believe there is a better awareness right now of the issue. So the main thing that people are doing now is uh, uh, rotating different chemical classes. And that's a good thing. That's only one of the approaches, you know, would be nice if people used economic thresholds more and uh, put uh, less new nicotinoids at planting uh, would be nice if we had better biological control options but unfortunately with cloradoptate beetle it hasn't been shown very um, to be very successful they just outbreed natural enemies quickly i wish there was more soil management techniques such as using uh, cover crops, mulches, organic amendments. The main uh, goal is to reduce soil erosion, in, increase fertility, but they were also shown, all those techniques were shown to create a much less favorable environment for beetles and to some degree to aphids. All that I wish would have been done more, but there are also, there are advances in those areas as well. When you're talking about measuring sensitivity of different populations of beetles, there's a lot of talk about different regional populations. Can you give me a sense to how big these regional populations are? So like, well, obviously there'd be variability between like potato beetles that occur in New England versus the mid-Atlantic or out west. But how fine um, of a difference are there? Like, is there a difference between the beetles in Orono versus Aroostook counties, like in, in your farms? Or yes. really different from farm to farm? Yes, they can be different from field to field, literally. Beetles can be very mobile. You know, they've been found like 100 miles into the sea and so on. But if they don't have to fly, they don't particularly like to fly. So if they have, if they have food and uh, if they have mates, uh, they will just stay put. As a result, we may have local populations which are kind of separated from other populations, not necessarily because there are like mountain ranges around them, but just because they're not very motivated to move. So there could be big differences even within one farm on different fields. Again, I find I find this very adorable. It's really amazing that Colorado potato beetle is such a devastating pest because they are 
such wimps. They play dead and throw up themselves when they're frightened. And to top it all off, they're lazy. This is good news for us, or at least those of us that are able to rotate out of potato and other solanaceous crops. The potato production that Andre is talking about occurs in, in large areas dominated by potato. If you can rotate crops, this is the number one management strategy. Andre also mentioned rotating chemical classes. For those of you familiar with the Insecticide Resistance Action Committee classifications or IRAC classifications, these are the numbers that you see on insecticide labels indicating the mode of action of the pesticide. Um, according to Andre, these were first put there by chemical companies to help people slow the rate of insecticide resistance, specifically for Colorado potato beetle. This classification scheme has grown in use um, with the recommendations for avoiding chemical resistance in other insect groups, as well as for fungicides and for herbicides. I also asked Andre what's new in Colorado potato beetle research. Right now, the big thing is uh, understanding genetics more. Beetle genome has been sequenced now that it's sequenced you know, people start thinking about what they can actually do with those sequences. One of that is trying to track down, you know, the movement pathways and, you know, where different populations came from and where they're going. Almost archaeological uh, interest to it, trying to retrace ancient caravan routes for Colorado potato beetles, except they're not necessarily that ancient. Another area where people are working uh, with genetics is trying to identify genes responsible for particular traits, including pesticide resistance. And the big question is uh, why resistance is such a big problem in the eastern United States, particularly northeastern United States and uh, Atlantic Canada, but it's not much of a problem in potato growing areas of the West Coast. If we can find out why, perhaps we can find out what to do about it. And at this point, we don't really know why. It could be genetic differences. It could be growing practices. Uh, it could be environment or it could be interaction of all that. A tough pass. But lots of ways to slow chemical resistance. Stay tuned because we will be returning to the topic of pesticide resistance as well as pesticide resistance in CPB. So with that, my thanks to Andre from the University of Maine. I would suggest going to his website. There's lots of great stuff there. Uh, and a special thanks to Brentwood's favorite son, Jason Lightbound, who wrote and performed our theme music.
Overinformed on IPM is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.